Hello, and welcome to episode 73 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. A warm welcome to Kim P., the newest member of The Modern Manager community. If you were a longtime listener, you know all about the perks of joining. You get episode guides, guest bonuses, and at some levels, you can join us in an intimate group coaching call where we will answer your specific questions and challenges. So if you've been thinking about joining or you're listening for the first time, hello, welcome. Now is a great time to head on over and join or find out if your organization will cover the membership fee as part of your professional development. Memberships start at $15 a month. And if you work for a nonprofit or government agency, shoot me an email and I will send you over a code for 20% off at any membership level. Find the link in the show notes or stay tuned at the end for more information. Now, today's guest is Lindsay McGregor. Lindsay is the co-author of New York Times bestselling book, Prime to Perform, How to Build the Highest Performing Cultures Through the Science of Total Motivation. She is also the CEO and co-founder of Vega Factor, a startup building technology to help organizations transform their cultures. Previously, Lindsay led projects at McKinsey & Company, working with nonprofits, universities, school systems, and Fortune 500 companies. Lindsay and I talk about balancing being nice and being a leader how to manage for both tactical performance and adaptive performance, how various motivations can help or hinder performance, and what you can do to increase TOMO, which stands for total motivation. Now here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, Mamie Canfer Stewart. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lindsay. I want to start with a quick shout out to Matt and Forrest for connecting us. I always love to give credit to the people who brought us together because this is going to be a really fun conversation. So, shout out to them for, for making this match happen. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Mamie, and to be on the Modern Manager. Okay, so I want to start in a place where most people don't want to start, which is all of the mistakes that you have made as a manager. Because I think <laughs> we learn so much from our own mistakes, and yet it's really hard to talk about them publicly. But you offered graciously to talk about the things that you have done wrong as a manager. So let's start with those. Yep. So... I am very envious of the people who seem to be born as these charismatic, incredible leaders. For me, I found that being a manager has been very hard one. So in the early days as a manager, I still remember, you know, when I would walk in on a Monday morning and I would ask my team, how was your weekend? And I would smile and I would ask personal questions and we'd have a nice chat. And then I'd go into some micromanagement on the whiteboard. You know, what is everybody doing today? You do a check-in, you do a check-out. All the trains were on the track. You know, people would know what they were supposed to do today. And then I would say, you know what? Call me if you have an emergency. Like, I'm here to help if you need anything. But besides kind of keeping the train on the tracks and being nice to people, I didn't really know what else I could do. And I remember sitting with one of my associates who was he was incredibly generous with me because he was older than me, more experienced than me, and could have been leading the team better than I could probably, or undoubtedly. And he, he said to me he's, that 
it looks like you see your job as being nice to people and that you see your job as hitting deadlines. But there's so much more that you could be doing. Like at the end of the project, we've met our deliverables, but I don't think anybody would say we just did the best work of our lives. And I think the real challenge for you is going to be to figure out how are you nice and authentic while at the same time helping people achieve more than they ever thought possible. And I was really taken aback by this feedback because, you know, it essentially said you care more about nice than you care about being nice than you care about having impact. But I was super grateful to him. It was this incredible, incredible learning moment. And it took me years to figure out how to get the balance between the two. It was only through our research into what is performance that I started to figure it out, which was that for any leader, there's two types of performance they have to manage. The first is their tactical performance. So this is how do you take all of the past learnings that your team has had and that your organization has had and codify it? How do you make sure that there are standard processes and checklists and to-do lists and routines that keep everybody really clear on here's what we're going to do. Here's how you do it. Here's all of the past knowledge of how we've done it well. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel or you don't have to constantly be making the same mistakes twice. It's not about micromanagement, but it's about codifying what's worked, which was a huge eye-opener for me in switching from micromanagement to give people those tools. But if the first part of performance was tactical performance, how do you all converge on the same thing? The second part of performance was adaptive performance. And this was how do we constantly learn new things? How are we creative, innovative, expansive? How am I helping every single person on my team understand where they should be pushing the boundaries and inventing new things and breaking the rules and testing new ideas? And do I have those two things in balance? I was completely focused on the tactical or completely absent. And the big lesson for me was figuring out how do I balance both the tactical and the adaptive? So first of all, I feel like every manager listening, or at least a big majority of them are thinking, oh, that sounds exactly like me. Like even I'm listening and going like, oh, am I spending way too much time on the tactical? Like those are the things that I love. I love process. I love checklists. And those are the things that are tangible. And the other stuff is hard. Like it's not surprising that you weren't doing that because I don't even know if I'm doing that. And this is what I'm trying to do with my business. It's super, super hard. And the tactical feels good, right? When you check things off your checklist, it feels so, so good. But in many of the organizations we work with, I mean, think about your first two weeks at a company or your first week with a new manager. Often your entire job is learning all of the rules that you're not supposed to break and all of the things you're supposed to do exactly the same way everybody else does them. And there's almost no point in time where your manager sits down with you and says, yes, you need to learn these hundred rules and processes, but here's the three areas where we, we don't necessarily know what the right thing is. Here are the three areas where I want you to experiment and innovate and take risks. And I'm not just going to say, go off, have fun, do it. I used to think that people wanted autonomy and that meant 
let them go do their own thing. But when we measured the people who had managers like that, their motivation was actually not very high. What they want is the leader who's going to say, go off and create these experiments, and I'm going to help you make them bigger, bolder, more creative, more impactful than you even you ever dreamed. I'm not going to be this distant, hands-off person. I'm going to help you take your great ideas and make them even better. That makes so much sense. And I see that with teams I work with too around issues of autonomy, that autonomy doesn't mean I ignore you. Autonomy doesn't mean that I like step away and give you free reign over everything. Autonomy means that we set goals and boundaries and I get to push your thinking and you get to figure out the how and you get to design whatever experiments or whatever ways of working that you want. But at the end of the day, like we're still a team in getting to that end result, whether the end result is learnings or the end result is accomplishment of some particular goal. Yeah, exactly. I used to think exactly the same, that autonomy was leave people alone. And I get to work now with a lot of cross-functional teams with that are working on new products. So for example, the teams will have engineers and designers and QA engineers and a whole range of different people on the team. And when you start, often the, the teams will say, you know, my two choices are to give everybody complete autonomy, in which case everybody's just going to chase the shiny new toy, right? The, the fun new technology that's fun for them to learn about. Or I can micromanage them to the point where I'm giving everybody like tickets with tasks that aren't going to take them more than half a day. And I'm going to go desk check everybody and treat everybody like they can't be trusted with more than an hour or two of their own time instead of running a really great collaborative team problem solving process where I've defined here are the areas where we want to experiment, where we want to learn, where we want to move forward. So let's go back to this balance of being nice and driving performance and unleashing potential. So how do you actually do that? Or what, what tips or suggestions? Because <laughs> it sounds all great. Even the, the autonomy stuff, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. But it's like, uh, how do I do that? Yeah. So great question. It took me a long time to figure this out. But you can get tactical performance on your team any way you want. So we learned that people will do the tactical stuff if you inspire them or if you like beat them over the head. You can use lots of toxic things. To, and, you know, people will follow your directions. If you say, you know, do this or else you're fired, they will follow your to-do list and follow your processes. But we realize there's only one way to get both the tactical and the adaptive performance from your team at the same time, to be both nice and high-performing. And that was if you understood the spectrum of motives that drives any human being. It's essentially, you could summarize it all down to one nugget, which is that why we work determines how well we work. And there's a spectrum of reasons why we do anything, and it shapes how adaptive we're going to be. So the most inspiring motive on one end of the spectrum is when somebody is doing the work because they actually love doing the work itself. Let's play. So you're, you feel like, when I'm doing this because it is pure play for me, I'm learning, I'm curious, I'm experimenting, I'm in the zone, I'm in the flow. It's why so many of us have hobbies that we don't get paid for and we're not famous for. We just do it because we love to do it. I don't know if you have any hobbies like that. Uh, you don't want me to go into my hobby list. <laughs> this is an issue that keeps coming up. My husband jokes that I have too many hobbies and that I need to like let go of some of them, but I just 
I can't help it. I love so many things. It's a great example. When you, lo- you just love it, you can't help doing it. The second motive is purpose. And this is when you're working because you care about the outcome of what you're doing. So maybe you don't find play in it. For example, maybe you don't find play in cooking, but you cook because you believe in the outcome. You care about having healthy, affordable meals at home. And the third motive is potential. And this is when you're working due to some second order outcome of the work. Typically in a job, this means the job is a great stepping stone. So a teacher with play loves coming up with lesson plans, with purpose, cares about educated students, and with potential says, you know what, I might not have play or purpose, maybe I do, but I want to be a curriculum designer one day. And this is a great stepping stone for me to get there. And so as a manager, one of the really important things for me to learn was where does each person on my team find play and purpose and potential? Because we could actually measure those motives and connect them to business results. We could prove that when you were motivated with those, you could increase sales by 20%, customer satisfaction by three times groups that were motivated by other things, cross sales and adaptive performance, all these things we deeply cared about. Unfortunately, most managers and most organizations are built to use the next three motives, which are really destructive. I can share those very briefly if that works. Yeah, well, I was just thinking, I'm like, wow, I totally expected money to be on that list or like prestige and those aren't. So are those in the negative motivators? (laughs) They are. (laughs) So play purpose potential, I'll drive adaptive performance up because they're all in some way connected to the work. You're still doing it because of the work itself. But the first of the indirect motives is emotional pressure. And this is when you're working because of shame or guilt or peer pressure, FOMO. Is this right? Fear of messing out. So imagine, for example, that your husband tries to get you to go to a dinner party with emotional pressure. You'll go kicking and screaming or you'll eventually go, but you won't be be planning for that dinner by saying, what could I do differently at this dinner? Like, how could I make it interesting? What do I want to get out of it? How can I be helpful at it? None of those adaptive behaviors will occur. And a lot of prestige is like that. So for example, we'll work with a lot of really high-end engineers or data analysts or hedge fund analysts where the reason that they joined their job was emotional pressure. They wanted to look good. They wanted to prove themselves. And that person is never going to be as high performing as the same person who joined because they were really in love with the work itself. Next comes economic pressure. And this is when you're trying to get somebody to do something through sticks and carrots. So you'll see leaders who do things, who say things like, if you do this for me, then I will give you that promotion. Or if you do this for me, then I will put your name up for employee of the month or that big sales conference. And that also does not increase adaptive performance. You'll get the bare minimum that you ask for, but you won't get the, you won't unlock somebody's true potential. And the final motive is inertia. And this is when somebody is doing something and they cannot even explain why they're doing it. It's, you went to coffee with a friend at the end of the week and they're complaining about their job yet again. And you say, why are you still in that job? And they say, I have no idea. They're just going through the motions. And these motives, you know, ranging from you love the work to you're doing it for some reason completely disconnected from the work are so consistent 
that you can measure them. You can add up how much of the good ones people feel and using a little bit of math, subtract the bad ones and come up with one concept called total motivation or TOMO for short. And by measuring TOMO, you can predict how creative a team is going to be, how high their sales are going to be, how high their customer experience is going to be. But unfortunately, many managers are never taught that you can actively increase play purpose potential without using that emotional pressure, or economic pressure or inertia. This is mind blowing right now. Like my, my brain is like, OMG, I never thought about this way. And now I want to know, like, one, how do I figure out what is motivating my team members? <laughs> how do I figure out what my TOMO score is? Like, what do I do with this? Yep, absolutely. So on the website of our book, which is primetoperform.com, there's a bunch of free surveys. So you can measure your own TOMO. You can measure whether your leadership style is high TOMO or not. And you can even send out a survey to your team that measures the whole team's TOMO and measures what might be driving it up and what might be driving it down. And then you get an anonymized report back that you can have a conversation about. What we find is really amazing is that just giving your team a common language around the different motives makes it safe for people to really have deep conversations that they never would have had before. For example, in a lot of the teams that we kick off really helping them transform their performance with this research, the beauty is that every person on a team tends to find play and purpose and potential in something different from one another. So you can build on people's unique strengths, their unique superpowers to put together a team of people that's really, really powerful together. The other caution I'll give any manager doing this is we all have a tendency to think that TOMO is driven by who you are, like it's innate, there's some high TOMO or low TOMO people, or by whether the manager is personally nice or not. And what was fascinating to learn for me was that your TOMO can be, a, you as a leader have a lot more levers to change somebody's TOMO. So in our book, we talk about how much role design really shapes somebody's TOMO. And I've had some of the best wins in my career as a manager by changing people's roles slightly to make them higher TOMO. Or in how you run your team routines or in how you coach and develop people. You've got a lot more levers at your disposal than simply being nice, which for me as a, as a manager was a huge relief. It's actually a pretty big toolkit. So I'm wondering to what extent the organization's culture and the organization's leadership or the organization's purpose is impacting Tomo. Is it really just about the individual and their particular role and their particular manager? Or does the team surrounding them or the culture surrounding them or the the mission of the organization that they're in, do those have a play too? Yes, they play a huge role. We were able to measure all the different sort of big levers in a company from the identity and mission statement to performance management systems to organization design and structure to figure out which of these influence Tomo. And they, all of the ones I just mentioned and a few more have a big, big swing. I'll take the one you started with, a purpose or a mission statement. One of the really interesting things in the research when we measured Tomo across you know, 50 major organizations in the world and thousands of people was that purpose didn't come simply from having a grandiose mission statement on the wall that sounded good, right? It's good if you have that. But when people's purpose was really, really high, 
It was when they felt like if they didn't come to work that day, something they cared about wouldn't happen. It's amazing. We work with huge organizations where so much of the work that they're doing is making people fungible or replaceable. They'll say, you need, I can't give any engineer a piece of code to own because what happens if she leaves? Mm-hmm. Or I can't give any salesperson unique customer accounts because what if she leaves? So and instead, they make everybody replaceable with everyone else. And that just creates this huge decline in purpose. And what you're trying to solve for, you know, what happens if somebody leaves, you've actually created. You suddenly start causing everybody to leave. Your retention gets terrible because people feel like what they're doing just doesn't matter. So your question is, you know, is spot on. There's all of these systems in your ecosystem and how you design a company and a team and run that team that really shape the tomo of an individual. That makes so much sense. And I'm thinking about like on a small team where like you can't necessarily change. Like if you're a manager inside of a big organization, right? Or you are a small organization and there's just not a lot of opportunity to change people's roles or to change the bigger culture. Like what are some of the things that you can change that you do have control over? So for teams themselves, we found that there's a ton of levers that are within their control where they can really boost the tomo and performance of their team within just a couple months. And the most powerful way to do that, once you've learned the language of tomo and you understand where each person finds tomo, is to help them think about, you know, at the heart of of tomo is learning. Play is when when you're finding that fun of learning. Purpose is you can see the impact of that learning. Potential is you can you feel yourself individually getting better. And so those teams will start to run a process or a routine where they're maximizing their pace of learning every single week. So imagine in your Monday morning meeting, you're coming together as a team and you're saying, what experiments should we run this week to learn from? How can we experiment in our strategy? How can we experiment in how we work together? How can we experiment in building our own skills? And how do we make sure we spend time thinking really expansively and creatively so we design really interesting experiments? And how do we spend time really minimizing those experiments into really small things that are achievable so we don't feel stressed and overwhelmed and like we've got too many priorities and too much on our plate? So for example, with one fast-growing tech company um, across 30 teams, they ran 270 experiments last week on how they could improve their performance. And when you get that rhythm right as a team leader, when everybody feels like, I know what I'm trying to learn this week, I know where I'm going to find play purpose and potential in it, you can create a really big lift in people's motivation and in your whole team's performance. You say 270 experiments. Yep. <laughs> in a <Yeah>. week. Uh, <laughs> how I'm still trying to like figure out like how do you do that and all your other work? Like that's incredible. Well, you make them all really tiny and connected to the work that you're already doing. So, for example, people people just have a lot more fun when you turn everything they're already doing into a game where they want to learn something. So, for example, one experiment could be you know, in this podcast, let me experiment with a different way of explaining tactical and adaptive performance and see how that resonates. Or, you know, in my, my meeting tomorrow, 
where I get to go speak to the head of technology for a large organization. Let me experiment with how I prepare for that meeting. And this is what I'm going to do differently than what I normally do. Let's see if that makes it a more interesting meeting. So you get much more intentional about the learning that you're doing in your day-to-day work, as opposed to adding new things to what you already do. I love this because it sounds like you're talking about experimenting with the how, with the process, with the ways of working, and not necessarily always making it about like how do we experiment to figure out some like big grandiose solution, right? It's it can be a simple, small, like what can I do differently to make myself better or to make how I collaborate with others better. Exactly. For example, a salesperson that I was working with this week, she had an experiment for her individual skill goal, her individual skills, like how do I get better at introducing our product? And she also had a skill goal that was more about how does she evolve the strategy of her team? So it was, I don't think we're doing a really good job in connecting with customers in the healthcare industry. So my experiment this week is going to be to come up with three new reasons why what we do should appeal to hospitals and try and test those in a couple of customer conversations. So it it was small things that were within her control. Exactly as you're saying. So, so, so great. Now I'm like excited to go right out. What am I going to experiment with? (laughs) But we have to shift into our wrap up. So Lindsay, will you share one of the rock star managers that you had the pleasure of working with and for and what made this person so awesome? Yes, absolutely. So one of my favorite managers was a mentor of mine named Mike, who every time I would go into his office and ask, what should I do with my career? You know, what should I do next? What should I improve on? He would always flip the question around on me. He would say, don't ask what your next step in your career should be. You should be asking, what problem in the world do you think needs fixing? And then how can you go fix it? And it was such a shift for me from being focused on myself and my own career to just get out there and find something that you don't think is working very well and just start start working on it. That is beautiful. All right. And our very ending question, where can people learn more about you, about the book, about Bigger Factor, and keep up with all the amazing stuff that you're doing? Thank you. Yes, they can follow us. Our organization, Vega Factor, vegafactor.com, works with organizations and people to transform how they operate. Our book, Prime to Perform, have lots of this research. And for those of you that are very quantitative, there's a ton of data in there to make the business case for this. For many of you who say, I get it, but you know, what's the business case that I can present to my board or my manager? There's tons of stuff in there. And um, the surveys on primetoperform.com are always a great way to get started. So thank you so much for having me. I've really appreciated being in here and love that there's this community of people that are really intentional in their learning. So thank you. Thank you so much, Lindsay. I feel like I learned so much, which people who listen all the time know it's one of my favorite things about the show is when I get to really learn something new so that I can be a better manager because like everyone else, I'm on a journey. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you, Mimi. Much appreciated. There was just so much awesomeness in that conversation. You can find the team and individual surveys at vegafactor.com survey. 
And if you are a member of the Modern Manager community, Lindsay's team has generously offered a complimentary conversation to map some next steps based on the outcomes of your team's assessment. They are also offering one customized signed copy of Prime to Perform. I will select one member at random on Friday, November 1st. So you just need to join before then if you want to get in the running for that book. To become a member, go to mamieks.com slash join. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash join. All the links are in the show notes and they are in your inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter, which you can do at mamieks.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.